reading from the, uh, the message translation of God's word, Psalms 119, 4 through 8. You, God, prescribe the right way to live. Now you expect us to live it. Oh, that my steps might be steady, keeping to the course you set. Then I'd never have any regrets in comparing my life with your counsel. I thank you for speaking straight from your heart. I learned the pattern of your righteous ways. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Don't ever walk off and leave me. Great morning, church. <laughs> Please open your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. It has been so good to sing with you this morning and to, um, to share in the Lord's Supper. There are some Sundays that I need church. I need to come and be with you more than others. This is one of them. And uh, just glad to get to come together with those who, who believe that he is risen, that he's risen indeed, and um, are grateful for that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we have sung to you. We have prayed to you. Now we'd like to hear from you. And that just is so humbling to me that it would have to come through this funnel now. Um, I realize I'm the only preacher who is humbled by the task of, of speaking about this incredible event in history. There are ministers all over the place, but I want to pray especially for the one who's at the Calvary Chapel this morning. Please bless John as he brings the word, and as he shares it with his congregation there. We're both wanting your spirit to take over this part of any service that we ever have and that you be heard above all that you bless above all thank you father for the gift that you've given that was above all and then the act that stuns above all you wrote you raised him he rose from the dead and god that is so easy to just get used to and i pray this morning through the power of your spirit that you Get us unused to it. That you help us, Father, to, re, to relive it, review it, and to be recharged by it, changed by it, recreated by it. We need you this morning to come. We ask it in Jesus' name and everyone said. I'm going to start off this morning with a question. Do you have any regrets? That's really not a trick question. Do you have anything that if given the chance to be granted a do-over on you would not just take the chance, you would jump at the chance. You and I may not be alike in many ways, but every one of us I know has regrets. Every one of us have some moments in our life that we wish that we could go back and choose differently. I've got one that the paint's still fresh on. Thursday afternoon, I ran out to John and Marilyn Knight's place to fill some deer feeders. And I took one of these with me. It's a turkey box call. Just in case I heard a gobbler. And um, I had the chance to invite him to dinner. My dinner. Um, placed the call in my army jacket pocket. I don't know if you're familiar with army jackets, but they're, they've got lots of pockets. And I love to wear them to, to hunt in. And I placed it right here in the lower jacket pocket. And uh, went to get into the Polaris and noticed that as I got in, it kind of snagged a little bit on the seat. Um, and I thought, ah, you need to move that out and put it in the lower pants pocket. There's plenty of room down there. But, you know, it's 
the thunder was happening and I got kids that were coming and I was in a hurry to get all through. I just didn't move the call out of my jacket pocket into my lower pants pocket. Well, as I got through with filling the feeders and got back to the truck, that's what it looked like. This is the actual call right here. And if you notice, it's missing the paddle. And I thought to myself, as I pulled that out, I thought, forget calling turkeys. I'm the turkey! Don't you hate doing things like that? All I had to do was move that out of my top jacket pocket and put it in my lower pants pocket, but I, I was in too much of a hurry. And you know what? It snagged at least two more times getting in and out of the Polaris, and I never moved the thing. And this is what it looks like now. Is that sad or what? It's in desperate need of some resurrection, if you know what I mean. And it's a regret of mine, about a $30 regret. I've noticed that when I talk to people about their regrets, they typically will start the sentence by saying this. If I had it to do over again, I'd... Let me fill in the blank. And every one of us is capable of filling in that blank because we all have regrets. We all have do-overs that we wish that if we could have back for just one minute or one hour or one weekend... We do things differently. I came across a website called secretregrets.com. You can go and Google it and see it for yourself. On this website are tens of thousands of posts where people have answered the question, what's the greatest regret of your life? That's a question I don't think most of us want to think about often, and probably not any of us maybe want to dwell on too much. But here's some of the regrets that were listed there. I regret not getting sober sooner. I was an alcoholic for 18 years, and it has brought destruction to my marriage and my relationship with my kids. Another one put in, I regret letting things go too far. I would do anything to go back now and unfriend him on the Facebook. It was only one time, but the secret is slowly killing me. I regret I never told you kids that I loved you while you were with me. I regret that I still cannot say those words. I regret that I didn't fight for us was another entry. Still another, I regret logging on instead of logging off. And the last one, I regret giving you my heart when all you wanted was my body. Whether you were raised a Jesus follower or whether this is maybe your first time to be back among some Jesus followers, or maybe if you have never, ever been to a place and gather with Jesus followers like you are today. Welcome. And I know that you bring with you, like the rest of us, some regrets. Some moments in your past that you wished, if you, if you just could, you could you'd do them over. You may not have spent some time behind literal bars of iron, but it doesn't mean that you don't feel like a prisoner to some of the mistakes that you've made. And you're desperate to be free from the guilt and the regret that imprisoned you, and that's what brought you here this morning. And I just want to say... He is risen, and because he has, there's hope. You certainly don't want to share those regrets probably with the person next to you, and I'm not going to make you, so take a deep breath. You're probably not about to post them on the website, even if you do go visit it after we get done with the services today, but you would like to know, is there some way to deal with those things in a much more painless and guiltless way? I really want you to understand this message of Easter is for you. 
And I just don't say that as a preacher statement. I honestly believe the Spirit's been working, God's been working to get some of you here, maybe particularly one of you here, to understand this is for you. He would do that. Some way, somehow, I hope this message helps us understand it's not just this body that one day God's going to resurrect like he did his son's body. But Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 says that in the same way that he raised Jesus from the dead through the power of the Spirit, that Spirit wants to give life to your mortal bodies. The resurrection isn't just a meaningful moment in history. God says, I want to change your history, starting today with some of you. He wants to transform some of those regrets into something you never could have imagined, something redeemed. There's two participants in the story of Jesus that were a part of his inner circles of disciples who both participated in decisions they never thought would have been attached to their names, never. And how they handled their regrets put them on a different course, a different trajectory in their lives. You know both of them well, regardless of how minimal you think you know Scripture. The first disciple's name, Judas. We most likely would agree that he has the most regrettable regret in history. Betraying Jesus to the authorities that would eventually crucify him, I think that probably registers as the most regrettable regret you can ever have. But the other member of the Lord's inner circle that I'm going to talk to you about this morning is named Peter. And it may seem odd that I'm connecting one of the greatest church leaders with one of the most treacherous traitors that's ever been. But they have some surprising similarities when you look at their stories. They both remind us that we all have bug spots on the windshields of our past we'd love to wipe away. And Easter does that. What do you say? What did you buy? What did you eat? What did you smoke? What did you lie about? What did you brag about? What did you take? What did you sleep with? Who did you sleep with? Who did you steal from? Who did you abort? That if you had it to do over again, you would do, you would just do it so differently. One of the Lord's disciples, I think, can give us a bit of advice, and that's Peter, about how to do that differently. You're not going to learn much from Judas. Because the guy followed Jesus for three years, watched him forgive adultery, forgive thievery, forgive prejudice and self-righteousness, and watched him heal blindness, watched him heal deafness and demonic possession, and even death. And yet, Judas, swimming in the grace of literally God in the flesh, could not believe Jesus could offer any of that to him. And so when he was responsible for regret that was the most regrettable regret ever. He hung himself. There's not a great deal to learn from Judas and how he handled regrets, except how not to. Peter, however, is a different story. When the lens of Scripture zooms in here in John chapter 21, his mind is full of regret. He and his bodies are doing a little, buddies are doing a little fishing, and regret is the only thing that fills their boat. It's nearing dawn. The fishermen in the boat are beat. They've been casting nets all night long with nothing to show for their efforts. But Peter's not thinking fish much. What he's thinking of is failure. 
His boat may have been on the Sea of Galilee, but his mind was back in Jerusalem. And with every pitch of the boat, a recent memory laughed against the side of his brain. Here was the first one. (laughs) He corrected Jesus. You're wrong, Lord. I don't care if they all turn tail and run. I'm never leaving. Never. Read my lips. Never. Then there was the impetuous cutting off of Malchus's ear, only to be retrieved from the dirt and lovingly placed on the young man's head like a Mr. Potato Head. That was a swing and a miss, wasn't it? Well, not really. Then the cowardice that overwhelmed him facing 60 to 1 odds when all the soldiers came by torchlight to take Jesus away. All that culminated in him running. He didn't know where. He didn't know when he was going to stop. But what he does remember is in mid-stride, being reminded of his promise, being reminded of his allegiance just for a moment, and he overcame his fear and he headed back. He raced as fast as he could to the one place he assumed they were probably going to take Jesus that night, the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And sure enough, that's exactly where he was. As he warmed himself by the fire that was raging in the courtyard, he could hear the shouts that were coming down from the upper room of the high priest's house. They were filled with sarcasm, they were filled with threats, and they were filled with lies. He could hear it all, and they were all aimed at Jesus. They made him sick. His hope was just to stay near him, but out of sight. But then the middle school girl made him. Just a middle school maiden. It sent a shockwave through him when she said, you're one of the followers, aren't you? And before he could think about it, his cowardice answered for him, no. No, you're mistaken. I'm not with him. It happened twice more. First, when someone also recognized his face. And then the second time, when someone recognized his accent. And this time when Jesus responded with his denial, he not only spoke with cowardice, he spoke with curses, the scripture says. May I rot in Gehenna if I'm one of his disciples. And if that wasn't a knife enough to his heart, Jesus looked up, or actually Jesus looked down, Peter looked up. The scripture says for a moment their eyes lock. Bloodied and bruised, not probably being able to see very well, he saw clearly to see Peter, and Peter saw him. But he didn't latch on to him long as far as gazes go, because his feet were moving, the text says. He ran, and he ran, and he ran. Hopefully to a place where regrets can't follow you. And those of you who brought some in here this morning go, well, I wonder what the name of that address is. wonder how that works for him. Well, you know how it worked for him. It didn't work very well. Because every one of us knows what it means to overpromise and underdeliver, don't we? I do. I spent a day or two in Peter's running shoes, and I know that you have too. So, what were the promises you made? Jesus, you have my word. I am never visiting that site again. These eyes are for my wife's body only, I promise. Lord, you've got my word. Not another drink. I've learned my lesson. I've done, I'm done with the drugs. I'm done with the alcohol. I'm done. Lord, this time the weight comes off and it stays off. 
Now it's not just my conscience who's on my case. The doctors say I'm just within a few points of full-blown diabetes. So no more brownies. No more Dr. Peppers. It's kale, chips, and mineral water. Lord, from now on, my tongue is your tongue. Set a guard over that thing, will you? Not another destructive word comes out of this mouth. Not to my kids, not to my wife. You have every word and my word. Not another tirade ever. We've all made promises and over-promised and under-delivered. I have. Is there any hope? He is risen. Yeah. He is risen. Yeah, there's hope. Because the same life that the Spirit brought to the body of Christ, Paul says, is the same life God wants to bring to yours. I know maybe you walked in here with the memory of the 18-year-old you hit during one of your drunken binges, having the air knocked out of your lungs when the helicopter came and airlifted her away. Maybe you're rocked with the tears of a wife who may never believe that she's good enough for you because of where your eyes have been. The mountain of regrets for hours lost with your kids because the weight was too much to want to do anything much with them. The look on your daughter's face, it said, I wish you were dead. She didn't speak those words. She was too small. She wouldn't dare. But your words had brought enough death into that relationship for the both of you. What do you do when you're swamped with a boat full of regrets? Here's my advice. Watch Peter. Watch Peter. In verse 5 there in chapter 21, the stranger from the shore shouts, Hey, you guys catching any fish? Peter and John look up and they think it's just a villager. And they say, no. He says, well, why don't you try on the other side? I bet you'll catch some. And I love this. No sarcastic remarks. No hesitation. John just looks at Peter. Says it can't hurt. Peter throws the net out into the water. He wraps a line around his wrist and he starts to, to wait. He's not waiting long. Boom. He's got to put his foot up on the, on the bow of the boat just to stay in it. Because I'm telling you, this net is full of fish. His net's full of fish. And while Peter's wrapped up in the task, John, the Bible says, is wrapped up in the message. Because I'm telling you, it is one moment of deja vu for John. This isn't their first rodeo with a mother load of fish. This has happened three years earlier. The long night, the empty net, the challenge by a stranger to cast the, the net out again. Fish filling the boat to the point of sinking. Wait a minute, John says, literally. And he looks at the shore and says, it's him, Peter. It's the Lord. John may have beat him to the tomb about a week earlier. Peter wasn't going to let him beat him to that shore. Puts on his cloak and just dives right in the water. They're about 100 yards out, the text says. And he just dives and he swims as fast as he can right to the one he betrayed. That in his greatest hour of need, he ran. And 
And when he arrives, Jesus doesn't give him a cold shoulder. Jesus doesn't give him grief. You know what he gives him? Breakfast. <laughs> Breakfast. He's got a charcoal fire going, and he's prepared fish on it. And that's not all he offers him. Verse 15, if you're in John 21, he gives him three opportunities to proclaim his love for him. That's what he does. One for each denial before that rooster crowed and before Peter ran. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Three times he asked him. Because three times Jesus, Peter denied him. I think it's interesting there's only two places a coal fire is mentioned in all of Scripture. The first is at the scene of Peter's betrayal of Jesus, and the second is at the scene of Peter's renewal by Jesus. How's that possible? Here's why. Because he's risen. That's why. And Jesus is a Savior that redeems ugly, broken things, especially promises. The Scripture testifies to that here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17. Please hear the word of the Lord. Please hear the word of the Lord. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross, we're free people, free of penalties and punishments chalked up by all of our misdeeds, and not just barely free either, abundantly free. Please believe that, church. Please believe Colossians 1 and verse 13. For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Redemption of the betrayals, redemption of the broken promises, redemption of the failures. Believe that, church. Regret redemption starts with a reliable remedy. And I want to remind you this morning one more time, in the blood of Jesus Christ, we have a reliable remedy for every failure. I thought they'd probably get an amen. Let me say it again and you can get your chance. Here we go. In Jesus Christ, we have a reliable remedy for every failure. One reason. He's risen. That's why. And you have to believe that. Not believe at it. You've got to put your full weight on it. That's my favorite phrase when I, when I think about what it means to believe in the cross and to believe in the resurrection. You've got to put your full weight on it. And that phrase comes from a funny story that I heard about one great-grandfather. He'd never flown on a plane, swore that he never would, but great-granddaughters have a way of changing that when they're born. He was on the West Coast. She was on the East Coast. And he knew that, that, that the, his grandkids were just... They're just too poor. They wouldn't have the time to be able to make it all the way to the West Coast, probably by the time his time was up. So sure enough, he called them, and he got on one of those things, flew across the country, and when he got off, man, was he greeted with hugs, but he was also greeted with some greed. Grandpa, I thought you said you'd never get on one of these things. And Grandpa said, well, I want you to know I never quite sat down all the way, if you know what I mean. You've got to put your full weight on this, folks. second thing you've got to do is this. Reorient your focus. The Bible has a neat word for that. It's called repentance. It's repentance. We don't use it much in day-to-day -day verbiage. 
It's a great word, though. It's a powerful word. And I think it's a word that I'm learning more and more about. I used to attach primarily a past focus to it, feeling sorry for something that I had done wrong. I mean, really sorry. And, and maybe even I'd been taught to go fix what was wrong. But you know what a biblical understanding of repentance really doesn't look back, it looks forward. Can I show you what I mean by that? By talking to the guy or listening to the guy who is probably the greatest theologian on repentance in the Bible, and that's John the Baptist. Listen to these words John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? He had to say it something like that. I mean, you just can't say, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Not a guy dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and honey dripping from his beard. Man, this guy is preaching, turn or burn, baby. And they were coming. They didn't want to burn. But he wanted to be very clear about what this turning looked like. I want you to produce fruit in keeping with your repentance. Well, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anybody who has some food should do the same. Even as the tax collectors came to be baptized, said, teacher, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. And then some of the soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Notice anything past tense about repentance there? Feeling sorry for monies you've taken? Feeling sorry for people that you had used and abused? Feeling sorry for going back and making right what you had? No. Just start living right now. We don't need more despair. We need a better dream. We need a better dream. It's, it's called reorienting a focus. That's repentance. And that's what Jesus Christ needs for you to do in your life. Because some of you are stuck in your regrets. You can't move. It's because you keep looking at them. You keep feeling sorry for them. And what Jesus is trying to say to you this morning, get a new dream, all right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and where he's wanting to lead you, where he's wanting to take you. Because he can take you to some great places. God can take something that was meant for harm. And he can work it for good. That's what repentance means. That's what redemption means. It's a great combination, this repentance thing and this redeeming God. And he wants you to, to be a part of that. Both when you've been harmed and it's not your fault, and both when you did the harming and it's absolutely your fault. For the first one, I want to talk to you about Joseph. Remember him? Sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused for seducing a boss, his boss's wife that... He didn't have anything to do with. For an injustice and an immorality he never committed, he's thrown into prison. But somehow, God redeems that. The God who raises Jesus from the dead redeemed that in Joseph's life. And he makes him, through a weird process, prime minister of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And he becomes an instrument for God to save his people from starving to death. Joseph did nothing. Deserving the injustices he was put through. And you may not have either. You may not have either. 
But Jesus on the cross and Jesus walking out of an empty tube shouts, look what God can do when injustice meets the greatest love of the world, the greatest life in the world. He said, but Jimmy, it was my fault. The injustice and the lies were mine. I was responsible. I was guilty. I was to blame. Then I would point you to Saul. (laughs) When we meet Saul in the book of Acts, he is on his own demented first century version of the amazing race. He's hunting down Christians like he was in a competition. Saul was present at and and approving of the stoning of Stephen, one of the early church's martyrs. He's on his way to round up more Christians when the resurrected Christ meets him on a road called Damascus. You know the story. Peter, what are you, Paul, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're certainly not helping me. You're hurting me. Can I tell you what I'd like for you to do, though? To find out about all that, you're going to have to go find a fellow by the name of Ananias. He'll help open your eyes to it, literally. The scripture never tells us that Saul goes back to rewrite any of the awful wrongness that he was a part of. Never. But what it is full of is this redirected, reoriented focus on doing all he can to get people right with Christ. He can't go back and undo those wrongs. None of us can. None of us can go back. No matter, no matter what we put at it or, or try, we can't fix that. It's broken. It's wrong. It's been done. It's in the past. But by embracing a new dream for the future, life gets better. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do. And I want you to feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then what I need for you to do is take care of my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Then feed my sheep. Not looking back to the past. Looking forward to the future. Well, good. Then will you take care of what I care a lot about for? Yeah, Lord, I'll do that. Here's a passage of Scripture that I would love to say to some of you this morning. I'm not saying that I have this all together. I I haven't. That I have it made, but I am well on my way. Reaching out for Christ who was so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself an expert in any of this. But I've got my eye on a goal. Where God is beckoning us onward to, say his name, Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith. I am off and running but I am not turning back. Now, some of you know that is I'm pressing on to the upward call of Christ, but that's Eugene Peterson's version of it, and I love it. I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward. Where are we going, Lord? It's the only way that I've found to be able to experience true regret redemption in my life. But don't take my word for it. I want, I want to share with you a young man who... I can't imagine him not convincing you that this real life change when you've either been responsible for the horrific or you've experienced the horrific, this real life change is possible. I can't think literally of another human being that might get your attention with that it's possible than a fellow by the name of Nikki Cruz. Watch this. 
when his heart turned to stone. His parents were deep into witchcraft. Nicky Cruz was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 1938. He was only eight years old when his heart turned to stone. His parents were deep into witchcraft and would perform seances and other spiritualist rituals. Nicky suffered severe physical and mental abuse at their hands. At one time, while in a spiritual trance, his mother declared that he was not her son, but the son of Satan. Hearing these words, he vowed as an eight-year-old boy to never love again, but to only feel hate. When he was 15, Nicky's father sent him to visit an older brother in New York City. Nicky didn't stay with his brother long. Instead, full of anger and rage, he chose to make it on his own. Tough, but lonely. By age 16, he became a member of the notorious Brooklyn street gang known as the Mau Mau's, named after a bloodthirsty African tribe. As callous and bloodthirsty as he had become, it only took six months for him to rise through the ranks to become their leader. As Cruz's reputation grew, so did his haunting nightmares. Lost in the cycle of drugs, alcohol, and brutal violence, he was arrested several times. A court-ordered psychiatrist pronounced Nikki's fate as headed to prison, the electric chair, and hell. Shortly after Cruz's ascension to leader of the gang, he encountered a skinny street preacher by the name of David Wilkerson. The preacher told Cruz that Jesus loved him and would never stop loving him. Shocked, Nikki responded by slapping Wilkerson and threatening to kill him. Wilkerson looked Nikki in the face and said that he could cut him into a thousand pieces but every piece would still say Jesus loves him. Two weeks later, Wilkerson had an evangelistic meeting in the neighborhood. When Cruz heard about it, he decided to go and teach the preacher a lesson. When he arrived at the arena, Wilkerson preached, then asked Nikki's gang to take up the offering. Nikki sprang to his feet and led a group of the gang through the crowd, insisting on people giving money. Going backstage, he saw an exit, but was struck by the fact that someone had actually trusted him he gave the money to Wilkerson on stage. Wilkerson's presentation of the gospel message and the love of Jesus melted the thick walls of Nikki's heart. When Wilkerson gave an altar call, Nikki responded and 25 of his gang followed him. Wilkerson prayed with Nikki and Nikki asked God to forgive him. Since the day he gave his heart to Christ, Nikki Cruz has traveled the world telling about the miraculous transformation that occurred in his life. Years after his conversion, Nikki created the Nikki Cruz Outreach, a team dedicated to reaching others with this message of God's love. From being declared the son of Satan to leading thousands to be children of God, Nikki Cruz continues to live out his dash, sharing the love of Christ. That's good. Either God can redeem everything, or He can't redeem anything. Either God can redeem everything, or He can't redeem anything. Those, that's just not a truth that comes from some thought process of Jimmy Sportsman. It's a truth from the resurrection and the cross. Either God redeems everything, or He redeems nothing. What can't he redeem in you? What can't his love and his grace and his mercy and his power not affect 
for the good in your life. We are Easter people. Amen? We are the people of Easter. We believe that he is a God who redeems everything. We believe that. Because he's risen. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you this morning for bringing us together as family to be reminded that you will not leave us in our regrets, but you'll redeem them. You are the great redeemer. And especially when it comes to the things in our past that have, have hurt us and the hurts that we've caused in other people's lives. And so if you've brought someone here today who, who needs a reliable remedy, would you be the lifter of their face and help them have a renewed focus? Help, you, help them reorient their gaze and to fix their eyes on who you want them to be and where you want them to go, not on what's taken place in the past. Holy God, we come to you this morning realizing we can't do that in our human power. That takes supernatural power from you to help cut the cords of those regrets and help us to be free to be able to move forward into what, what you've dreamed for us for the rest of our lives. Please do that today. God, I know you've brought some specific people here today to hear this message. Please set them free now because of the blood of Christ and because of an empty tomb. We call that together in one name, Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. We're going to sing a song of invitation. It really is that. If there's any way, anyhow, that we could help talk to you about what, what that renewed focus might look like, what repentance might look like in your life, how that connects to baptism in your life, we'd love to visit with you. You literally could leave here today with every sin in your life washed away if you've never been immersed in his name. Raised to walk literally in a brand new life. A Nikki Cruz level life. Because God did that in Nikki. It's not Nikki, it's God through Nikki. What could he do through you? What could he do through you? Anything. Let's stand, let's sing church.